Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Greetings and welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Hello, I'm Christoph Irwin. And I'm Michael Walker. And this is the podcast that explores the science involved with architecture, construction, and design. And we're all about framing the conversation around you, the occupant, because you are the person who will be inside the space. And if you're not comfortable and healthy in the building, there's no meaningful reason to put the thing together in the first place. Agreed completely. If you design around human beings inside the space, you'll end up designing a really good building. Precisely. So Christoph and I were thinking about how much there is to say uh, about building science and just what does human factor design mean and what our next show should explore. And we realized that most people who live in buildings probably don't have much context for what building science is. And that's not because the information isn't available or people aren't smart, but it really is tough to put together all of that information, to synthesize it in a way uh, that makes sense. And most of us just think, I want our contractor to do it. I want my architect to handle it. But even then, for those particular people to know the history behind the vast array of building practices across the world, it's a really tall order and a tough task. So we wanted to take some time today and explore one of the most taken-for-granted pieces of the home that also accounts for a pretty huge global energy use, and that is the air conditioner. It's got a pretty weird history. Uh, and some of the pieces will likely surprise you. Before we dig in though, I want to clarify what exactly air conditioning is. So what air conditioning does is it uh, conditions the air in a house. There you go. Simple That's answer. It. Done. Good. Glad you guys so, are here. <laughs> so conditioning is not the same as cooling. That's an important distinction. It is responsible for cooling and drying or dehumidifying the air in a house. So besides cooling and drying, More generally, uh, air conditioning could be thought of as conditioning the air to meet human factors. And this is going to include removing unhealthy particulates, which FYI, today they're coming mostly from cooking. There's some research on that from Lawrence Berkeley. Uh, An air conditioning system will also condition the air for humans by adding fresh air for ventilation. It'll deodorize it, and it'll distribute mix and, you know, help convective Uh, cooling. So cooling, drying, filtering, deodorizing, ventilating, and distributing. That's what an air conditioning system is. And most of the country right now is happy with the strategy of random side effect drying. And that's something that if you're into human factor design, you will quickly decide is not um, a good strategy. I mean, it can work in some circumstances, but most of the time it's a good strategy to have something that's dedicated to drying. But back to what an air conditioning system does is it cools and dries the air in the house by creating a cold surface, moving the air across it, and in so doing, absorbing that heat into the cold surface, that heat gets pumped outside. So there's an inside piece and an outside piece on all air conditioning units. Even if you have a window unit, there's a barrier in there. Part of it is exposed to the outdoor ambient condition. Part of it is exposed to your indoor space. So if you go stand by the outdoor unit and put your hand over it, you'll feel hot air. You'll feel extra hot air. Even though obviously if it's on, it's already hot outside. 
what's happening is the air that is, the heat that is collected from inside the house is getting uh, put into the refrigerant and the temperature is getting raised to something like 40 degrees above ambient conditions. So into the mid 100s and then it radiates that heat into the outer uh, outdoor condition. Um, so it's pretty simple. It hasn't changed very much in about 50 years when it was first in homes. It's poised for a lot of change. And uh, back to one more little point about what an air conditioning system is that I think we really need to keep in mind. And that is that an air conditioning system is a product that is being sold to a consumer base, and that is us. So in that sense, there's a profit motive and a manufacturing base that is really oriented around selling us what they're ready to sell us when they're ready to sell it. And I, I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but that's, that's the way it is in consumer society. That's a really good perspective and one that we'll definitely be diving into a little later on in the podcast. But to take it back to square one, where does this all begin? Why do we even use air conditioning? For those of us who live in the hot, humid South, it seems kind of obvious. You want to stay a little bit cooler during the summer months. Uh, people are creative and curious. It seems like the perfect climate for uh, innovation, right? I'm hot. I'm uncomfortable. I'm smart. I'm curious. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. The pharaohs, and I, I wasn't around then, but I've been told and I've read in some history books that the pharaohs in Egypt would have their uh, minions carry big earthen clay vessels full of water up onto the roof at night where they would be exposed to the night sky, which is very cold, and night sky cooling would, have, would occur, and that would cool the water. And then in the day, they would carry those earthen vessels down into these mass wall assemblies, these big, thick stone wall buildings, and kaboom, you've got cold water, cold mass absorbing all the heat in the space and so that was something like an early air conditioning system actually it didn't do anything with controlling humidity but in egypt it probably didn't matter and so as we trace back through the history of people who have been thinking about this problem and trying to solve it one of the earliest developments in conditioning air was simply the discovery of all liquid evaporative cooling and benjamin i invented everything franklin and this Cambridge University professor, John Hadley, discovered that evaporation of alcohol and other volatile liquids, uh, which evaporate a lot faster than water, can cool an object down enough to freeze water. And they figured this out in 1758. So it was well before we have modern technology as we think of it today uh, to help along those experiments. So after Franklin and his buddy discover this really interesting evaporative cooling process, not much of note happens until the 1800s. And in 1830, a guy named Dr. John Gorey built this ice-making machine that used compression to make buckets of ice. And then what he would do is he would blow air over the ice and over the patients in a hospital uh, where he worked in Florida. So he patented this idea in 1851, and he had these grand visions of his invention, cooling buildings all over the world. Unfortunately for him, and unfortunately for many entrepreneurs throughout the history of the world, he didn't find any financial backing. His dreams melted away just as the ice did. <laughs> it's a sad story, right? Well, here's a sadder one. In 1881, after an assassin shoots President James Garfield, uh, there were some naval engineers who built this boxy makeshift cooling unit to keep him cool and comfortable, right? So the device they used to keep President Garfield cool was actually filled with water-soaked cloth, 
and used a fan to blow hot air overhead and keep cool air closer to the ground. The good news? Sure, this device can lower room temperature by up to about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. The bad news is that it used a half million pounds of ice in two months. And President Garfield still died. That's a lot of ice. And a lot of death. Mm -hmm. So all the while, while this was going on, there was this scientist named Alfred Wolf, who was an engineer in New York. And he was um, our predecessor, Michael. And he was, because he was thinking a lot about human design factors... He was thinking about human comfort, and he was, as far as I know, one of the earliest people to identify a few key pieces of information that would be looking at making humans comfortable and the various dimensions of that, right? So these were temperature, humidity, contaminants in the air, and air distribution, moving the air for uh, convection and getting the air where it needed to be. He also identified a system to do it and it was a real game changer and it really helps shape the industry that we are benefiting from today and how to achieve its goals. His biggest achievement was his work on the Cornell Medical College in New York and he developed a, an amazing way to cool air using steam-powered ammonia absorption chillers to cool the supply air. By the way, we are still using ammonia-based absorption chillers. Go to a hockey rink. You'll see them. Could you explain what that actually is? I probably can. So it's an absorption-based chiller. It's actually using heat to drive an ammonia-based refrigeration cycle. So basically it has two fluids. It has a refrigerant and an absorbent. And through the process, what happens is you get a, the low-pressure liquid boiling at a temperature that is lower than the temperature you want to condition the air to, and therefore it can absorb heat from the air. Um, it's a very robust, reliable process that has a pretty cool feature at its heart, and that is that it relies on collecting heat to drive a process that makes something cold. So there's a lot of promise for this in the future. We could collect heat off of our uh, patio or the roof of our building and use it to drive absorptive chillers. Absorptive chillers are definitely still used today. They're mainly big commercial systems uh, that I know of. There aren't any that are... Um, certainly manufactured and sold widely that are used for residential applications. But this technology existed pretty early on in the game in trying to figure out how to oh, yeah. use refrigeration, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So it was the basis of actually early refrigerators and for uh, market marketing forces that we'll talk about later, it, it didn't end up being the winner. So then in 1902, there was this guy named Willis Carrier, uh, and he invented this Thing he called the apparatus for treating air. It's a very proper name. Uh, and he invented it for this lithographing and publishing company in Brooklyn, New York. And the whole idea was to condition the space so that the, the ink would lay on the page right. And it was Paper really would fascinating. Be mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So the machine he invented would actually blow air over these cold coils. And that was what controlled the room temperature and humidity. And it's not dissimilar from the process that we all experience on a day-to-day -day basis in our own house. Mm -hmm. um, but finding that other factories want to get in on the cooling action, Carrier establishes this Carrier Air Conditioning Company of America. And to this very day, he is considered one of the most uh, founding fathers of air conditioning, and his company name even lives on with a lot of air conditioning oh, yeah. products. Mm -hmm. Carrier is a definitely an important guy, and one of his lasting and enduring contributions, besides his name on his company, was that he really 
perfected or developed a way to look at the air humidity and temperature conditions, and we call this psychrometrics. And you can look that up, but it's spelled P-S-Y-C-H-R-O, and then metric, psychrometric. And the psychrometric chart is the basis of all air conditioning calculations today. It has to do with um, temp comfort conditions. It's correlated with comfort conditions. It's correlated with mixed air conditions. But I think what's really important, what Michael just said, was he originally named his apparatus an apparatus for treating air. And fundamentally, that's what air conditioners do. Air conditioners condition the air inside the building. And in so doing, there is the hope that we're also going to condition the occupants inside the building. More on that later as well. Um, but back to carriers. So this idea of the psychrometric chart gave engineers or gave people developing these systems a way to predict what was going to happen. And there were people that had worked on this earlier on, but he was one of the ones to refine a system and a process to say, if I combine ingredients in this way at these temperatures and pressures, I will result in this psychrometric condition in the space. So that is a turnkey way to make machines and perfect, um, I guess, a manufacturing process. Yeah, and the manufacturers were definitely not lost on this point. <laughs> uh, they understood that the technology was viable enough to take the market. The more you can control about the conditions, the more you can probably sell it, right? Because it seems like this new, amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and to that point, the whole time that this discourse was going on, the innovation really was driven by social demand. People wanted to be more comfortable uh, in their homes. And there was a sense at the time that it was technologically possible. Mm -hmm. And that's a really powerful thing. Technology right? was, was technology will save you or technology will uh, pamper you was definitely in the air. You think about it. It's the, the late 40s. The war is over. Um, I guess the good guys won. <laughs> and we are all going deep into the realm of uh, consumer society and products will save us and make us happy. And so uh, the Madison Avenue folks really contributed a lot toward that. It's so true. And one of the interesting thing, uh, interesting things about this to me is that there were a few key players in developing that air conditioning technology, putting a lot of hard work towards solving the problem. Um, but now that we think about it, was the technology that was chosen the most efficient or the most sensible technology? And the answer is probably not. Probably not. No. So the the other forces that were in play is this idea that, you know, we got back from the first two world wars, right? The mm -hmm. sense in America was the zeitgeist of progress forward. And there were companies that were hurting from the wars because they lost a lot of labor force. They lost a lot of market share. Mm -hmm. And so they had to adapt, right? Just like big companies still do today. And one of the biggest contributors to this was General Electric, right? Mm -hmm. They were a huge agent in pushing forward the compressor-based refrigerants because at the time they were particularly more abundant and they were easier to take to market. They were already making machines of that sort for the war, the motor. Exactly. They were making compressor-based machines for the war. And even though the, the absorbent technology existed, when a big company like GE says, hey, let's go ahead and take this to market, they have some clout, right? They've got the capital to put into the research and the marketing. And before you know it, here we sit. And there was the huge energy crisis in the 70s. And all of a sudden, we had to say to ourselves, uh -oh. what the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so jumping back to Carrier, 
briefly, I just want to make sure everyone's very clear on this point that when Carrier was having his success developing and selling his units, these were units were not human factor devices. They were not making people comfortable, except as a side effect, for the people who were working in industrial applications from textiles to cotton to tobacco. That's where his machines were selling. There was a lot of industry buying a lot of his machines. And it actually took a few decades before human comfort became the big selling point for air conditioning equipment. And this started uh, reasonably enough uh, in the South and with affluent areas in the South. And it actually started first in movie theaters. Air-conditioned movie theaters became a really big deal. Then it went into department stores. Notice the trend. We're selling you something. We're luring you in. We're going to make you comfortable. And then it started to spread. After World War II, it quickly spread into homes. And particularly in the South. I mean, maybe you want to Google something like uh, cities that wouldn't exist without air conditioning. And you'll see some facts and figures around the tremendous population growth in the South that is definitely underpinned by uh, mechanical air conditioning using lots of electricity. Absolutely. And so expand that even further into the future, right? There's not that much time that passes between the the 1940s and 50s to the 70s when we can mark this very significant energy crisis and we can look at the proliferation of air conditioning and we look at the building practices of the time and these very thin walls and just the sheer amount of energy that it took to run these air conditioners at a much larger scale than it had ever been uh, known in mankind before. Right. So we're at this kind of crux point, right? We yeah. have to figure out what do we do? We have a lot of smart people. We actually had a government lab that was working on solar panels. And some researchers there set out to, I believe it was in Colorado, they set out to look at ways to make the uh, air conditioner um, more efficient. And it was pretty easy to find one glaring feature, a performance, uh, lack of performance feature with air conditioners. And it was that they really only had two speeds. Uh, they had an on speed and an off speed. So think about another machine that you use all the time. Let's think about your cars. Let's just say your engine only had two, uh, let's not use the word speeds, but uh, two horsepowers that it gave you. It could give you full horsepower, like engine floored all the way on, and it could give you off. So you set out on your drive, you turn the key, and you're cranking. Your engine's floored, you're moving forward. Very quickly, you're saying, okay, that's enough. I don't need that much power anymore. So you have your choice to turn it off. And that's what you do. You turn it off. So that's obviously going to be a lot of wear and tear on the machine. It's obviously going to be the ultimate in stop and start driving. And it's going to be very inefficient. Can that... you imagine the gas bill? <laughs> and that is the exact model for the way most air conditioners today currently work, right? If you have a single speed air conditioner, you, you know, you, I have a three ton air conditioner. Well, you have three ton air conditioner. And when that's too big, you have a zero ton air conditioner. <laughs> and let me tell you that it's too big well over 90% of the time, right? So, and to take it one level deeper, the rating, this thing called the SEER rating, the S-E-E-R rating that you get to use to choose to buy your air conditioner, it is relatively meaningless. It is only for peak load meaning when it's super hot out, and which is an extremely small set of sense of, uh, excuse me, it's an extremely small subset of time over the course of a year. Very much, going back to the car metaphor, it would be like you're going to buy a car, and the only performance metric you get is how efficient the car 
can tow a trailer uphill in the mountains That's or something. N- you don't do that every day? <laughs> I wish I did. Well, actually, I wish I was just hiking in the mountains. That would be even better. And so the U.S. invented this system that had the ability to vary the capacity of the air conditioning equipment. So when you say vary the capacity, what do you mean? Well, I mean your accelerator pedal in your car. It varies the capacity. Well, let's just say it this way. Your engine has a certain peak capacity, right? That's floored. Mm-hmm. And it has a certain minimum capacity. You could call that idling or in neutral. And then you can use the accelerator pedal by... You can use the accelerator pedal to vary the output capacity. So vary the capacity simply means you have a machine. It responds to the load. In a car, it's a hill. In an air conditioner, it's heat. So you have varying amounts of heat in an air conditioner, and you want to have a machine that can respond to that and not always be floored or off. Makes sense. one or the other. Let me go a little bit farther here and tell you that this system, it has a name, first of all, it's an acronym. Variable Refrigerant Flow Equipment is typically used as the acronym, which is VRF. And we've talked a lot about it in the past. And VRF equipment, it dominates most of the rest of the world right now, and it's making its way back into the United States, its uh, country of birth. So that's a good thing. So did it die out in the United States? Why? I mean, why isn't this more prolific in homes uh, that we see every day? Because I do see a ton of these you know, on or off style HVAC units. Everywhere my house has one, certainly. Where did VRF go? You know, it went to Japan and it <laughs> went to Asia and the Philippines. And I'm not exactly sure of where it went, but the manufacturers weren't ready to sell it to us, I guess. I, I, mm. I could speculate more, but maybe sure. I'll just leave it at that. But it didn't get sold and it didn't get marketed. And to this day, you know, I saw we're here in Austin. It's You would definitely pres- describe it as a fairly progressive city. Today in Austin, the average homeowner doesn't know to ask for VRF. And many, uh, even professionals in the industry, don't recommend it to their clients. And uh, yeah, that's, that's going to shift. It's changing quickly. The smart contractors are out there saying, hey, I'm going to get on the wave and realize it's selling fast. So just to summarize that, so variable refrigerant flow air conditioning is dependent on two things that we understand well to achieve this effect that adds the accelerator pedal to the air conditioner. And they are, the two things, two metaphors would be a spigot, like a hose bib. It's a valve that can control the amount of water that comes through at your hose. So you could open it all the way, you could close it all the way, you could pick something in the middle. They call it a, an electronic expansion valve, EEV, or a linear expansion valve, LEV. And that's when you hear that, you could just think computer-controlled spigot, and it's controlling refrigerant flow. So that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is very similar to the gears on a bike. You can ride a bike with a single speed, or you can ride a bike with multiple speeds. Let's say you're riding a bike with multiple speeds. You're pedaling along at a steady cadence. You can go up and down hill absorb those loads but you the motor are experiencing the ability to operate in your sweet spot at a steady cadence so the gears on a bike the spigot on a hose those two ingredients give you variable capacity so a traditional hvac is more like a fixed gear bicycle it's like a fixed gear bicycle and when you go up a hill you grunt and groan and your air conditioner does too when it gets hot yep if only a traditional hvac system could give your house better calves (laughs) 
So thinking back through the history of air conditioning from Benjamin Franklin's experiment with evaporative cooling all the way to what we just discussed, which is VRF. And it is a tangible, efficient air conditioning technology. We have arrived at this interesting point, in my opinion, because we're forced to ask ourselves if air is really the most efficient way to heat and cool a space. Mm -hmm. As we know now, we are conditioning air to condition a space mm -hmm. right and f even from its inception and its origins we were conditioning the space because the space was holding these intense machines that take up a lot of space right mm -hmm. but when we think about a residence i'm an occupant i'm a human and i'm only in one part of the room mm -hmm. and so we know with with vrf sure we can kind of accelerate back and forth to treat that but it's only using air, and it seems like that might not be the best way. Yeah, so one little quick fact. If you just look up a typical three-ton system operating in Austin, it's going to move over 40,000 pounds of air each day. So, that's so you 40, mean actual pounds, physical 40, pounds. 40,000 pounds, 20 oh, tons, 20 tons of air go through the average three-ton system on an average day in Austin in the summer. Yes. That ain't no joke. No, that's, that's really a lot of weight. And so if you think about that, your air conditioner, it seems like it's just moving fluffy air, and you know, relative to water, air is rather fluffy. But it's moving a lot of it, right? So a pound of air is around 14 cubic feet. So that's about as big as a, a tiny refrigerator. So 14 cubic feet makes a pound. There's a lot of air. Probably the room you're in has hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds of air in it right now. And we're using that fluid to rinse the walls, rinse the surfaces, rinse the machines, rinse the people, <laughs> and harvest the heat off of them, take it back into the air handler and reject that heat or capture that heat and send it outside. So you just said something that's kind of mind-blowing, and that is air is actually a liquid. Air is a fluid. We don't think about it. Fluid either. dynamics includes air, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. How interesting. Yeah. So what's really important to keep in mind when you're going through that idea of rinsing the building and rinsing the people and rinsing the machines and using and capturing the air is that implicit in that strategy is that the heat made its way to the interior of the building. It made its way to the interior air of the building so that it could be captured by the air. So implicit in there, you're hearing it, right? The building gets hot. So you, you have this hot building. That means, what is a hot building? It means that the surfaces of the building are hot. And I think we know from basic physics that anything hot will send heat to anything cold. In fact, a little subtlety here, this idea that, that heat rises is actually wrong. Heat moves to cold. Heat, when it's in the air, hot air floats, because it's less dense, hot air floats on cold air. So the term heat rises is not right. If you hear someone saying that, just go ahead and tease them a little. Hot air rises because it floats on cold air. It's kind of like if you went to the swimming pool, you wouldn't say, I rise. You would say, I float on the surface of the pool. But back, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So digging back into this concept of letting the heat in the building, right? So we have this, this relatively fluffy liquid, this air inside the building, and it's collecting the heat from the air inside the building. The machines, these air conditioning machines are in fact conditioning the air in the building. So the air condition, is at a comfortable spot. So we assume that the surfaces around you, when your air is at the right spot, that the surfaces are also at a comfortable temperature. Well, this works 
when there's a wall near you or a ceiling near you that has any reasonable amount of insulation in it, right? So maybe R5 or R10 or above, something like that. So this works when you won't experience really intense spikes or what we call transients in the loads coming off your surfaces. And when I say this works, what I mean is the mass of air, the hundreds or thousands of pounds of air that are surrounding you in the room, they're acting like a thermal flywheel to absorb the transients, the heat loads that are coming in through the walls. If you have a wall that is made of glass or is made of worse, if it's made of something that actually conducts heat, like steel. Like steel, that would be a bad thing. Glass is an insulator, steel is a conductor. And that steel is collecting radiant heat from outside. Let's not even think about ambient temperature. Let's say it's 40 degrees out and the sun is shining and it's hitting steel. That steel is going to absorb the heat and it's going to go into the 100 degree range, 150 degrees. And if you have a thermal bridge, so if you have that same steel going inside, now you have very hot metal inside and it's going to overpower it's going to overpower the ability for the air condition the mass of air to keep up with it so the way we're positioning the conversation is that the air conditioning and the actual building materials and the way that that building is built are inextricably linked absolutely right? absolutely the way that works is uh, expressed in our motto human factored design if you think about it that way you're designing a system to make people comfortable and healthy and the system is not the building, it is not the air conditioner, it is both. It is implicitly both. And so we talked about this earlier, the mass of the air in the building needs to be able to absorb the uh, transients of heat and cold. This same logic applies in the winter from the enclosure. What this means is that if we want to make things really, really good, what we do is we use a variable capacity air conditioning system. This is summertime really, really good. Use a variable capacity air conditioning system with an enclosure that rejects spikes, right? And what are the big spikes? The biggest spikes are not the outdoor temperatures. 100 degrees is not a big deal. The biggest spikes are solar radiation. So this gets into the choice of fenestration, shading, glass. We talked about a little bit about that last time. And where this goes is you have a good enclosure, you put a variable capacity system on it, and that system just cruises along, sipping energy, responding to, in real time, the heat that is actually out there, right? Because the building is pretty much a static entity. Well, it's always regulating heat, air, and moisture flows, but it's... The building itself is static, and the loads, heat, air, and moisture loads, are always changing because the weather is always changing. So if you're interested in finding out a little more about how to keep the building from being heated... Right. What if your building never got hot in the first place? Wouldn't that be awesome? Think so, about a whole new way to heat and cool homes. Exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's super exciting, and that's something we've been looking at a lot recently. And one of the big changes there, it's pretty simple, is instead of using air as the fluid, what if you used a fluid that was 832, I think it is, times more dense than air to collect the heat? And what if instead of just using the mass of air in the building as your heat harvesting uh, mass or reservoir, what if you used the building itself? What if you really 
kind of imbued the building with a, uh, the fabric of the building itself with a more fundamental role in conditioning the people that are in it. So the building itself, the enclosure itself can become the primary mechanical system. Now that is really, really, really awesome. Stay tuned with us next time. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks you guys. Bye.